Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Luca Heberle, a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Matt King about his new book, Dynasties Intertwined, the Series of Ifriqiya and the Normans of Sicily, published by Cornell University Press. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks so much, Luca, for having me. Looking forward to our conversation. Likewise. So, it's great to be in conversation with you, Matt. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm a historian of the medieval Mediterranean. In my undergraduate days, I specialized in the Crusades, and I thought for a long time that's what I was going to be doing. And then in graduate school, I got dragged into the world of North Africa, initially unwillingly, but now I'm very much a proponent (laughs) of of studying that history. And so now I, I look at myself broadly as a medieval Mediterraneanist. My, I think, big contributions uh, to the field right now, or I, I hope they will be, you know, okay, is uh, looking at Arabic and Latin sources in dialogue with one another. So not approaching history from a, a really Eurocentric lens, you know, trying to bring in the perspective not only of those in Europe, but also on the other side of the Mediterranean. Uh, I also do, as I'm able to, uh, uh, work that brings in environmental history, archaeology, trying to be as interdisciplinary as the sources permit. And then when I'm not doing that sort of research, I really like to do uh, outreach for middle school and high school uh, students through a program called Nat- National History Day, which allows them to undertake research projects on topics that have some sort of resonance with them. So that's my way of getting out of the ivory tower every so often. Mm, that's cool. And actually, you you noticed the, the effort... Uh, but into into being uh, interdisciplinary in, when when reading the book. So now I'd like to, to to ask you how was this project born and what moved you to to write this book and what did you wish to accomplish with it? This project was initially born out of my dissertation and the goal initially was not very admirable, it was just to get a PhD. And then uh, <laughs> as I progressed along that that road, I decided to, you know, that there were loftier intellectual goals that I could have uh, beyond that. So my dissertation initially was focused on the Norman Kingdom of Africa, which we'll get to, I imagine, later. And it was approached very much through this sort of Latin Christian Eurocentric perspective. Like I, I wanted to look at the Normans and how they inserted themselves into North Africa. And then as I turned this dissertation into a book, I realized, well, that's not really I don't think that's the best way to examine these relationships because it's just in keeping with any number of well done, but kind of at some point redundant histories of Europeans in the Middle Ages going into the Middle East and North Africa. So I decided, well, what if I look at the two dynasties at the heart of these interactions, the Normans of Sicily and the Zirids of Ephrikia, and I put them in dialogue with one another for as long as they are interacting. And so by doing that, I hope to show the interactions between the two to show that we can't really understand the history of one without the other. And in doing so, I wanted to show that the Zirids, which have kind of long been disparaged uh, or overlooked as a dynasty, like really have a lot to offer and that it, I, I think trying to look at the Mediterranean of the 11th or 12th centuries without them uh, gives us a, a not complete look at the the world. So the the goal was sort of those it eventually morphed into those two two ideas. And I hope that the book, you know, at the very least makes us think more about these dynasties than we might have uh, otherwise done. That's great. So now, before we dig deeper into your book, 
Could you give us a brief overview of Sirid and Norman history? Since most likely even some medievalists don't know much about the former, needless to say non-experts, answering such simple questions as where and when the narrative uh, takes place would probably be helpful. Right, and I'll do my best not to lose anybody this soon into the interview, so I'm <laughs> going to go as broad as I can. So in the 11th and 12th centuries, we have this connected Mediterranean world uh, where there's commerce and there's conflict, coexistence, tension. There's just all sorts of these really incredible interactions that are taking place across this interfaith milieu of Christians, Muslims, and Jews, pagans, and then of subsects within each of these religious groups. So we're just throwing ourselves into this, this menagerie, right? And two of the groups within uh, uh, the Mediterranean at this point are the Zirids of Ephrikia and the Normans of Sicily. As you mentioned, the Normans are, are, are a little more well-known. Uh, certainly to medievalists and probably non-specialists might, might have encountered them before. We most often hear of the Normans, at least in America, in the context of England, because in the middle of the 11th century, we have William the Conqueror, Hastings, and the establishment of the dynasty that continues to this day. But the Normans are, as I say in my undergraduate classes, they're like the motorcycle gang of the Middle Ages, in that they just kind of go all over the place uh, and extend their reach uh, as far as they can. And that includes not only England, but also Sicily, it includes North Africa, and it includes the Middle East as well. So they're intimately involved in the Crusades, they're constantly fighting with the papacy, and they establish this short-lived but really dynamic uh, monarchy in southern Italy and Sicily during the 11th and 12th centuries. So that, those are the Normans. Uh, a lot has been written on the Normans, and I would encourage anyone to check out the scholarship of uh, Sarah Davis Secord, Jeremy Johns, Alex Metcalf, Graham Loud, to get a sense of what's happening with the Normans in Sicily, if you want like a sort of a detailed portrait. The Zirids have gotten a lot less love, and that's in part due to just the general trend in medieval scholarship of emphasizing Europe, of uh, working with Latin and Greek sources and that sort of thing. The Zirids are documented almost only in Arabic sources, which has seen a real flowering recently in scholarship, but only in the last 20 or 30 years. And so they're one of these groups that I think we can learn a lot more about uh, and sort of take, take some lessons from the context of the Mediterranean during the 11th and 12th centuries. They are a Berber group, and Berber is a, is a fraught term. Ramsey Rigi has written a lot about the difficulty of defining the Berbers, but I'm just going to skirt that and just say we're meaning indigenous North African, and we're meaning specifically not Arab, because that's the dichotomy that we see in medieval sources. So they are a Berber group from a tribal confederation called the Sanhaja, uh, living on the edge of the Sahara Desert, who eventually make their way further north towards the coast of North Africa. In doing so, they ally themselves with a Shia Muslim group called the Fatimids. They become trusted commanders of this group. And eventually, when the Fatimids move to Egypt, are appointed as governors uh, of this province. They are emirs, they're princes uh, to the Fatimids in this region of Ifriqiya, which we'll get to in a second, I think. And so the Zirids are ruling as uh, representatives of the Fatimids in Ifriqiya and sort of modern day Tunisia, Eastern Algeria and Western Libya. And they're at this point, you know, they're just a couple days 
away by ship from the Normans. And as such, they have really uh, consistent dynamic contacts uh, with them from the 1060s to about 1148 or so. And so the, the book kind of looks at those interactions there. And I hope that the overview, the very cursory overview I've given helps contextualize these two dynasties such that we're not totally lost from square one. I think it does. Uh, well, now uh, we'll take the small risk of being a little bit re repetitive, but I think our listeners should now have a basic understanding of both dynasties. And hence, I'd like you uh, to, to give us a more thorough explanation of the of the Syrian dynasty, dynasty's history up until its first meeting with the Normans. Right. So the to get into a little more detail here, I think we should start with the Fatimids. And to understand the Fatimids, we have to go back even further, and we could probably <laughs> do this until the Big Bang, because that's what historians do. Exactly. But, <laughs> so uh, the Fatimids are a Shia group. Uh, and when I say Shia here, I'm talking about one of the major subdivisions of Islam as opposed to the Sunnis, right? And this dates back to the right after the death of Muhammad and his contested succession. The Shia uh, are a minority in the Middle East uh, in the, uh, the, the 9th and 10th centuries. And uh, there's this particular group that we'll call the Fatimids, even though they didn't call themselves that at this time yet, that believe in this messianic prophecy and want to spread their message. And they are disputed in doing so by the prevailing powers of the time, namely the Abbasids of Baghdad, who are Sunni, as we see them today. And so the Fatimids decided to go far, like as far away as they possibly could from the Abbasids of Baghdad uh, in order to try to cultivate power. They go all the way over to modern day Morocco and they drum up support for their cause among uh, Berber indigenous groups there. And so this is the context for the rise of the Zirs, is we have this group, the Fatimids, who are, have been sort of exiled almost from the Islamic heartland, and they're looking to move their way east to eventually overthrow the Abbasid of Baghdad and put, make Shia Islam the, uh, the, the, the main force in Islam as they want it to be. So the Fatimids gradually gain power. Their, their ideas have resonance with Berber tribes, although these the extent to which the Berbers cared or understood what the Fatimids were really preaching is, is contested and they might have just liked the power that they got from them. And one of the groups that helps the Fatimids as they overthrow the Aglabids and as they are gathering power in the Maghreb and Afrikia, uh, which is kind of just modern Northwest Africa, uh, is, is the Zirids. They're this, uh, this, tribe within the Sanhaja group, which I mentioned earlier, one of three major subdivisions uh, of the Berbers, and they become uh, really capable commanders, military commanders under the Fatimids. One particular individual named Ziri ibn Manad is instrumental in helping the Fatimids put down a revolt in the 940s led by a man named Abu Yazid. And this is one of these uh, sort of foundational moments for the Zirid dynasty, because the Fatimids, knowing that uh, they have this capable military commander, Grant Ziri, uh, control of the city of Ashir in modern-day Algeria. And then when the Fatimids move east to Egypt, because Egypt is closer to Baghdad, they feel like they can launch more effective campaigns against the Abbasids there. They appoint Ziri's son, Balukin, as emir of Ifriqiya in the 960s. 
So the Zirids come to power via this larger Fatimid desire for control. And in doing so, they elevate the Zirids in this way. When the Zirids are under control of the Fatimids, though, it's not like there's a really tight, happy relationship between the two. For the most part, once the Fatimids move to Egypt, it's a symbolic overlordship that they have over the Zirids. They exchange gifts between themselves. That's one of the ways we know that they're in each other's good graces. They, the Fatimids collected taxes from the Zirids. The Fatimids provided administrative officials to the Zirids, although these administrative officials kind of wanted power for their own. And But the Fatimids aren't providing military support for the Zirids. They're essentially letting the Zirids fend for themselves in the name of the Fatimids. And even this is part of a larger Sunni-Shia group, Sunni-Shia rivalry, because the Zirids are fighting essentially proxy wars in uh, on the western sides of their territory against other Berber tribes that are loyal to the Sunni Umayyad Caliphate of Cordoba in modern day Spain, right? So we have the Shia Sunni and the Sunni, or sorry, the Shia Fatimids and the Sunni Umayyad Caliphate of Cordoba, each employing Berbers to fight on their uh, borders for their own power. And that's the the origin of the rise of the Zirids uh, as it stands. Do you want me to talk about when the, the, the falling out with the Fatimids or or should we leave that for another, another time? Mm, maybe briefly, yeah. Yeah, so it's not all wine and roses between the Zirids and the Fatimids. Uh, there's... Uh, the, the city of Kairouan, which is kind of the main hub of Zirid power during the early 11th century, is a hub of Sunni, uh, Sunni jurisprudence called from the Maliki school. And the Zirid emirs become uh, enmeshed in this tradition and they, they you know, are increasingly seeing themselves as distinct from the Fatimids. Uh, because of this, because of the taxes they have to pay, the lack of support. And so they eventually sever ties with the Fatimids, which leads to the arrival of a group called the Banu Halal in Ifriqiya and the the destruction to some degree of the Zirid's authority. And this sort of sets the stage for their first interactions with the Normans. Again, I don't know how detailed I want to want to be here. I can get into a lot more, but I don't want to just overwhelm listeners with mm-hmm. the minutiae at this point. Yeah, I think that's that's all right. So now, again, one might think that questions surrounding uh, the region's geography could be irrelevant or boring. But instead, you highlight how even delimiting the boundaries of Ifriqiya itself is quite difficult. What did medieval Arabic sources mean by this term? And how did you demarcate the region in your book? And lastly, and relatedly, how did Ifriqiyan uh, geography condition commerce and agriculture, arguably the two most important economic uh, activities of the region? Yeah, the term Ifriqiya is an interesting one. And, uh, you know, listeners that are, that, are, that are hearing this, I hope they think, well, that sounds like Africa. And that's because it is. Uh, Scholars agree that the term Ifriqiya is derived from the Roman province of Africa Proconsularis. This is Scipio, Africanus, and, and all that jazz from the Punic Wars from a long, long time ago. Now, the, the borders of this changed during the Roman period, and they were in a constant state of flux in the, the medieval world, too. And so when I think of Ifriqiya, I think roughly 
as I said earlier, I think, of modern day Eastern Algeria, Tunisia, and Western Libya, north of the Sahara. But the borders of those are ever-changing and always in flux. And indeed, the, uh, the Muslim authors who wrote about Ifriqiya during the Middle Ages, they were, first of all, unwilling often to accept the Roman sort of origins of the word. They said, oh no, Ifriqiya is named after this hero of early Islam who, who helped conquer on behalf of the early caliphs. Or they say that uh, Ifriqiya is derived from the root faraka, uh, which means to uh, divide something because it separates, uh, uh, Ifriqiya separates the Maghrib in the West from Egypt in the East. So they're looking for ways to make the province their own. But when we look at the borders as described by geographers and, and chronicle sources, they, they really vary. Uh, it just generally means this area that's between the Maghreb in the West and Egypt in the East, but it's often defined in political terms. Like we'll hear some uh, say that the Aglabids, for example, controlled Ifriqiya. And we see cities like uh, Bougie or Bajaya in modern Algeria kind of flipping between being in the Maghreb or Ifriqiya, depending on who's in control. And ultimately, it kind of becomes a semantic question of like, oh, well, what, what does it matter if this area is or is not part of Ifriqiya? It's not like there were fixed borders at this point. And when we hear about like the extent of power, it's, it's in terms that we wouldn't even use for maps, right? It's like, uh, it's like this person has all the territory on a three days ride to the east, right? That's not exactly how treaties are formed in the 21st century, right? So the, the borders of power are, are in a constant of flux. And as such, I was like, well, I don't need to create a new definition here. What if instead we focused on the urban centers that are a little bit more fixed? Hmm. So I did what any enterprising young historian would do. And I just sort of sidestepped the question and did something different instead of trying to like come up with a, a concrete definition. Rather, I just acknowledge it's a complicated question of where and what Ifriqiya really is. What matters more, I think, is who is in control of these urban areas and who is in control of the countryside around them uh, at, at given moments. Now, turning towards the question of uh, sort of geography more broadly, uh, at least in the U.S., I think uh, the continent of Africa is homogenized as this area sort of dominated by the Sahara Desert, which obviously isn't home to the most productive agricultural settlements. But uh, during the ancient medieval worlds, North Africa was incredibly productive. Uh, the area of Africa proconsularis was called the breadbasket of the Roman Empire for, for good reason. It's, it's home to incredible productive agricultural land that could cultivate wheat, among other things. Now, by the time we get to the Middle Ages, much of that Roman infrastructure has collapsed due to lack of maintenance of aqueducts, roads, and things like that, repeated conflicts, uh, de things like that have changed the landscape, but that doesn't mean the land itself is not still very fertile when it needs to be. And so we have in North Africa the ability to grow uh, wheat on agricultural settlements. We have orchards, we have date plantations. All of these things are attested in geographies that allow for people to eat and live there. We also see, though, a move towards pastoral modes of production, especially after uh, the arrival of the Banu Halal into Afriki in the 1050s, where we see, based on soil degradation studies, that the plants that were there 
were more likely to be sort of the kinds of plants that would uh, sort of be used for grazing rather than agriculture. And so we, we have this land that's productive. It's not all being used for agriculture, but we, we have it uh, sort of sustaining this population. The population, though, isn't just sort of sustaining on uh, agriculture, but there's also the trade. Uh, North Africa and Afrikia, uh, especially, is one of several termini for sub-Saharan routes uh, that start in modern-day sort of Ghana, Mali, uh, and and move towards a network of oases uh, northward, where they trade with various groups in the Mediterranean. So the Zirids are the beneficiaries, at least initially, of these sub-Saharan routes for which they uh, receive salt, gold, slaves, uh, uh, among other among other goods. And so we have this region of Ifriqiya, which I think I talk about in the book as being essentially like an area almost bounded by two seas. You have the Mediterranean Sea to the north, where you have islands and you have ships that traverse it. And you have the Sahara Desert to the south, which is comprised of camel caravans and oases that link them. And from this, we have this, this area that functions as this like liminal trade zone between these two areas, which allowed for those who govern these areas, especially in the Maghreb and less so Ifriqiya in the era we're talking about, to become incredibly wealthy. Well, now that we've already mentioned the Banu Hilal, uh, I think we could uh, discuss the traditional narrative of uh, Syria decline. Because traditionally, Western historians have presented Syrian history starting in the 11th century as one of steady decline. According to this narrative, the Norman conquest of the region in the 1140s simply is the natural culmination of this process. Even though you dismiss this account as re reductionist, uh, you still present the reader an overdetermined uh, existential crisis for the Syrian family. What are the most relevant causes of Syrian power's uh, reduction during this period? A reduction that would limit their control to certain uh, coastal territories. Yeah, thanks for this question. And so I'll start by giving the narrative that's kind of been dominant. And I want to say at the outset, this is not the, the one that I adhere to, but it's the one that's seen in museums in Tunisia and in, in a lot of scholarship. And the idea is that In the middle of the 11th century, we have a disaffected Zirid emir named Al-Muiz ibn Badis, who I alluded to earlier. And due to pressures from Maliki jurists in Kairouan, due to his own increasing independence, due to lack of help from the Fatimids, he's seeing himself as more independent from the Fatimids and not wanting to pay tribute, things like that. So sometime in the 1040s, uh, he sort of breaks from the Fatimids and declares his allegiance nominally to the Abbasids of, uh, of, of Baghdad. And according to this narrative, this ushers in a uh, response from the Fatimids, which involves sending forth this confederation of tribes called the Banu Halal, who are Arab tribes that initially are from Arabia, but had been in sort of the greater area of Egypt for, for decades at this point unleashing them westwards uh, to Afrikia, where they just devastate the region, plunge it into anarchy, and the whole area is just a shell of its former self, ripe for the picking for the Normans who come 
a little less than a century later and take it over. Now, there are elements of this narrative that I think hold up, but others that don't. So the parts about zero disaffection, yeah, sure, they, they definitely break with the Fatimids. But the Fatimid role and the nature of the conquest of the Banu Hilal is a little different based on what the written sources give us. And here I'm not making a very original argument. This was something that Michael Brett was arguing and uh, sort of sc French scholars writing refutations of this colonial narrative, as it's called, were, were formulating in the late 1960s onwards, but it still hasn't really gotten, I think, as much traction as it deserves. Uh, so the, the, the Fatimids don't like that the Zirids... Uh, sort of broke away from them, but the Fatimids don't have the power and resources to command these tribal groups to just destroy everything in Afrikia. Instead, what we see is that the Banu Hulal had already for decades been slowly pushing themselves west, looking for new lands and territories. And we see the, the Banu Hulal enter the landscape in the uh, 1030s. So a couple decades or, or a little more than a decade before the Zirid break with the Fatimids. And the Zirids initially kind of welcomed them into the area and hired them as mercenaries. But then the Banu Halal, you know, initially under Zirid control, gradually saw that they could win battles for themselves and take territories for themselves. So gradually, we have this animosity between the two that results in the Banu Halal winning a number of important victories, the most uh, significant of which is the Battle of Haydarin in 1052. The Zirids get pushed back gradually from their capital of uh, Kairouan and Sabra al-Mansuria, and by 1057, they're forced back to Madia, a coastal stronghold uh, that the Fatimids had founded a century and a half earlier. And so what we see here then is that the, the Fatimids want to capitalize on these relatively independent conquests. So they send ambassadors uh, alongside the Banu Hulal to uh, sort of like say that this had been something they were planning from the start and that they, they, they want to use these relatively independent conquests of the Banu Hulal as a way to get the Zirids to submit to their rule, which they do. The Zirids resubmit to Fatimid authority, but you know, begrudgingly, they've lost most of their territory. And now we have this landscape that's really decentralized. Whereas before the Zirids had been undisputedly the main power broker in Ifriqiya, they had, you know, they had a small rivalry with this offshoot group called the Hamadids. Uh, but overwhelmingly, they're, they're the power brokers. Now we have this decentralized landscape where we have the Zirids, the Hamadids, and then these offshoots of the Banu Halal. And the reason why I think this reframing is important is because instead of saying, well, the landscape's anarchy and no one has any agency, it's saying, well, now we just have a, a really different landscape in which uh, the Zirids are one of numerous groups uh, that are vying for power, all with different ways of trying to exert it. And the Zirids in particular still have a robust treasury, they have a navy, and they have this really sort of, you know, impregnable by the standards of the time fortress at Madia from which they're able to uh, look for new ways to expand their power across the Mediterranean, especially uh, into Sicily during the 1060s and the 1070s. And so we have these sort of factors that I think lead us to the first interactions with the Normans. Now, how did the Normans and the Syrids come to clash in the 11th century in Sicily? How did this conflict evolve? Right. And, and so 
I've just given sort of the nor or the Zerid context that leads us to when the Normans arrive. I'll give the other side of the story mm-hmm. now and how the Normans uh, got there. So we have the story goes that in the early 11th century there were a group of Norman and Norman here uh, means this group of once Vikings, now this settled group in northern France. Norman derives from the word Northman. Uh, so these Vikings set themselves up in northern France, and then they were looking for ways to further expand their power. This group of pilgrims in the early 11th century was invited by a uh, local Lombard lord. The Lombards are uh, a native group of southern Italy, and to, to fight against the Byzantines who were there. So the Byzantines is this uh, the, the successor state, if you will, to the Eastern Roman Empire. They consider themselves Romans, but they, they were predominantly Greek speakers. And the Byzantines are thorns in the Norman side and vice versa for the entirety of the dynasty. And so this is the beginning of that animosity as the these Norman pilgrims and the successors to them come to Southern Italy to fight on behalf of Lombards against the Byzantines. Okay. And this in a way that kind of, you know, broadly mirrors what happened with the Bunhulal, I guess, although that comparison might be a little fraught. The the Normans realize that they have a lot of power of their own and they begin expanding their own power in Southern Italy such that they are sort of power brokers of the region by the 1050s. So over the course of several decades, they are not immensely popular. They receive papal recognition for their conquests only after they've captured the Pope, which is not the first or the last time that will happen. And then in the early 1060s, uh, Roger I of Sicily uh, receives uh, permission to sort of be the Lord of the island, right? And to begin these conquests uh, over the Muslim groups that are in control of Sicily. So Southern Italy is controlled by Greek Christians and Latin Christians, Sicily controlled by Muslims. And what we see is Richard, or sorry, Roger I, and to a lesser extent, his brother, Robert Guiscard, invading Sicily and over the course of three decades or so, conquering the island and making it a Christian island to this day. Um, and so that's the, the Norman context is that they come from Southern Italy they're invited to, beha- to fight in Sicily initially on behalf of a local lord named Ibn al-Thumna, and they gradually work their way from east to west, conquering the island. The Zirids have a you know, different story in that after their move to Madia, the successor of al-Muiz ibn Badis, uh, Tamim ibn al-Muiz, uh, looks for new avenues to expand his power. And having just gotten walloped on land for the last couple of years, uh, Tamim sends two of his sons uh, with with forces to Sicily uh, across the Mediterranean to begin conquering lands on behalf of the Zirid dynasty. And they have initial success. They conquer Palermo and in, are in control of much of Western Sicily. And this leads them into a natural sort of conflict with the Normans, the Normans who are moving east to west, the Zirids who are moving west to east. And they face down in a handful of battles, the two most significant ones at Cerami and Missalmeri in the 1060s, and the Normans win decisively. And so the Zirids are kind of put on the back foot. They, they undertake some raiding expeditions, and we hear about these, uh, these, these Saracens, you know, or these Africans, as they're called in the Latin sources, 
being a, a thorn in the side to the Normans as they're moving west. But to no real avail, the Normans conquer Palermo, the major city of Sicily in 1072, despite the Zirids trying to resist. And sometime after this, shortly after this, the Zirids, they, they change their strategy. They realize the Normans have a, a hold on Sicily that they're not going to be able to unseat. And so they move to this campaign of raiding and pillaging around the central Mediterranean. Initially, this includes Norman lands. And we hear one story about uh, Zirid ships patrolling the Mediterranean and Norman forces uh, assuming that they were pirates because that was their, their reputation, essentially. And so we have the this clash in Sicily that is decisively Norman controlled, but kind of counterintuitively leads to eventual commercial cooperation between the two dynasties. Uh-huh. Well, that's perfect because that leads us to the next question. Because in the in the in the third chapter of your book titled "Commerce and Conflict from 1087 to 1123," you question the assumption of constant animosity between the Sirid and the Norman court. How did their relationship um, develop during this period? Yeah, that's a, that's a great setup for where I was hoping to, to go next. Now, with everything that I've been talking about, we're hampered by the sources. There are not as many sources as we would like for anything in the Middle Ages, but especially for the history of the Zirid dynasty. Most of the sources that deal with the history of the Zirids were written decades, if not centuries after the event. And so we have to bear in mind not only the biases of the original sources that these later sources were writing based on, but also what was in the head of these people writing in the 13th and the 14th centuries. And so, you know, filling in some of these narrative gaps, we can surmise that sometime soon after uh, the, the, the 10, late 1070s and the early 1080s, the Zirid and Norman signed some sort of treaty or came to an agreement that they were not going to mess with each other anymore and that they could both prosper from commerce passing peacefully through their ports. We have uh, gold, salt, slaves from Africa in exchange for textiles, in exchange for wood, in exchange for all sorts of other sort of uh, equipment coming from the northern Mediterranean. So we have these the, the trade potential that's there that could make both these dynasties They could be mutually beneficial to both dynasties. And we can see kind of the, the influence of Zirid gold in the Norman court by virtue of the fact that at this point, the Normans are the only Christian power to have gold coinage uh, that they develop in, in the 12th century. So in this time, we're getting to see sort of commerce sort of coming to the fore. Now, this uh, this commercial relationship is tested on a couple of occasions that if anything, shows us how solid the connection is. I'll give you two examples of this. The first is that is a Pisan and Genoese raid in 1087 on the city of Madia. I guess attack is probably a better word for it. But essentially, what we can see from the Arabic sources is that the Zirids stop raiding Norman lands. They mention all sorts of places the Zirids attack, and none of them are under control of the Normans from the 1080s onwards. So the Zirids are still using their ships to plunder and exact tribute from people, uh, but just not from the Normans. Now, two groups that suffered from this are the Pisans and the Genoese, two up-and-coming Italian city-states. 
these city-states, which were normally rivals, decided to work together uh, to try to put an end to zeroed rating. So in 1087, they launched this expedition, which is commemorated in this fantastic Latin poem called the Carmen in Victorium Pisanorum, this song in, 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 for the Pisan victory, for the victory of the Pisans, sorry. Uh, and in it, we see that the, uh, the Normans are sort of, uh, tr- they, the, the Pisans and Genoese, they attack Madia and they take most of the city, but not the really fortified peninsula. And then they've, you know, they've plundered what they can and they're like, well, what do, what do we do now? And they extend an offer to Roger the first of Sicily to take control of Madia. But Roger refuses because he has pre-existing treaties with the Zirids. So the Pisans and the Genoese just leave. What this shows is that the Zirids are, you know, vulnerable to outside invasion. They're not the power brokers that they once were, but that there was such treaties in place between the Normans and the Zirids that the, the Normans didn't just want to conquer the city outright. They saw that the trading partnership was valuable enough for the Zirids to continue ruling it. The other example is, is a more fraught example because it comes from a source that's writing decades after the fact during the heat of the Crusades. And he tells us, this is a, a chronicler named Ibn Alathir, who's one of the main uh, narrative sources for the Zirids. He's writing on the basis of a now lost source written by a Zirid prince. Uh, and he's putting his own spin on it in some way. And he tells us of this story where during the first crusade, like right before the expedition, uh, a, a contingency of, or a, a group of soldiers from a first crusade leader comes to the Norman court and says, what if we attacked the Zirids in tandem with this attack on Jerusalem? And Roger, the first of Sicily lets out a big fart and says, that was a better idea than attacking the Zirids. Because he says that like, they have these pre-existing treaties. It would make his life harder. Then he sort of ominously foreshadows when we have the power, we will take it. Right. And so it's one of those apocryphal tales where we have to take it with a grain of salt. How would Ibn Alathir have known about this? It's a little convenient uh, to talk about this collusion between Christians uh, that are attacking the Middle East and North Africa at the same time. I'll talk about that, I think, a little later in the interview. Uh, but it still points to this idea that at the time, the Normans had a strong trading partnership with the Zeres that they were unable or unwilling to break for this crusade expedition. And so we have evidence of this productive trading partnership uh, that exists for decades until it begins to fall apart in the like 1110s or so when the Zeri- when the Normans who are becoming more and more sort of assertive in controls of Sicily and the central Mediterranean begin to want to sort of insert themselves into North African affairs uh, a little bit more. And it's here we get that the, we get the beginnings of the fracturing uh, of this partnership. Right. Well, by 1123, Third rule seemed more solid than it had been in a long time. Both the victory over a coalition of local lords and the fruitful alliance with the Almoravids appeared to guarantee, to guarantee its security. And yet, in the following years, drought, Norman attacks, and more broadly, bad fortune, would deliver a critical blow to the dynasty. Consequently, 
In chapter four, you discuss the rather abrupt fall of the Emirate and the surprising Norman conquest of sizable portions of Ifriqiya. What series of uh, events led to partial Norman, Norman control of Ifriqiya and the exile of the Syrian ruler at the time? And as an aside, what's the endocrinology and how does it help us learn about the crucial regional decrease in rainfall? Okay, so a lot to unpack there. And I realize I probably should have talked a little bit more about the souring of Zero-Norman relations in your last question. So to, to sort of pick up where I left off, we have sort of a couple like standoffs between the Normans and the Zerids in the late 1110s and the early 1120s, both of which end up, and the sources are kind of ambiguous on the first uh, of these encounters. We, it was either a sort of standoff in which the Normans kind of just left or the Zerids launched a surprise attack and took out the Normans. It's hard to tell. We, like, we don't know for certain because the sources are contradictory and it's not clear that we should prioritize one source over the other. But we do know that in 1123, the Zerids won a really decisive victory over the Normans at the fortress of Aldemus, which is located not too far from Madia. And this, uh, this victory was sort of a high point for the career of the last Zirid Emir, Al-Hassan Ibn Ali, you know, he was able to utilize a uh, alliance with the Almoravids of Morocco to sort of launch raids on the Normans. He could defeat them on his home turf. He sent out this, this letter that extolled the virtues of his domain and the jihad with which he fought against the Normans. But then we have some you know, a number of setbacks that befall the Zerids, especially during the 1140s, but beginning in the 1130s. The biggest thing that happens here is kind of outside of the Normans' control is that the Normans just grow immensely in power and the Zerids don't. So during the 1120s and the 1130s, the Normans are able to solidify their control over Southern Italy uh, and to sort of bureaucratically unite uh, uh, their sort of governors in Sicily. And so we have Roger II crowned King of Sicily first in 1130 and then in 1139 because the first coronation was by an anti-pope. And this allows for immense wealth to flow into the kingdom. We see alongside this administrative reforms and this really sort of not pan-Mediterranean, but this, this image of kingship that is that draws upon Islamic precedent, Latin Christian precedent, Byzantine precedent, uh, sort of cultivated by George of Antioch, who's one of these uh, high-ranking officials in the Norman administration, and who was once employed by the Zerids, and whose younger brother was likely strangled by uh, a Zerid government official, right? So he has beef with the Zerids uh, long-term. The Zerids during this period don't disappear at all, but they're kind of focused on smaller conflicts in Ifriqiya, control over one city or the other, rebels sort of trying to determine who has trading rights in what area. Now, this isn't bad in and of itself. It's just the Normans are getting a lot more powerful and want to exert more control over North Africa and to get better trading contracts uh, for this commercial partnership. As a result, we get to a point in the 1130s where the Normans are more or less able to strong arm the Zerids into accepting what they want. So we see this most concretely in 1135, 
when the Normans besiege, or sorry, sorry, when we see this most concretely in 1135, when the Zirids are being besieged by their Hamated rivals at their capital of Madia. And the Zirids at this point have lost their local allies. They've lost their Almoravid allies because the Almoravids are being conquered by the Almohads, a group that we'll talk about later. And so they, they turn to the Normans, the only other group they can seek assistance from in the region. The Normans agree. They help repel the Hamated evasion. And then on the way out, they take the island of Jerba for themselves, which is uh, a nearby Ifriqian island. It's here that we see the Normans kind of asserting themselves in a way they hadn't before. They are able to take this island ostensibly to help commerce, but really because they want control over it. Uh, and they're able to negotiate better trading contracts with the Zirids. So at this point, the Zirids are certainly, you know, not in the position they were in the 1120s. And this is compounded by sort of what I think is the real death blow to the dynasty, which is recurrent drought in the 1140s. Now, we know about this drought in the context of chronicle sources. They are in unanimous agreement that in the mid-1140s, there was a devastating drought uh, that caused uh, emigration from Ifriqiya to Sicily that resulted in mass starvation and death, that resulted in people from the countryside moving to cities in the hopes of finding food, cannibalism. We get all of these tropes that you would expect uh, from when a drought happens. But, you know, we want to sometimes take these accounts with a grain of salt because we don't sort of, we know they're uh, sort of trying to portray this, this narrative in a certain way. One thing we can do, though, to sort of verify to some degree the, the accounts of this drought is to look at dendrochronological evidence. And this is tree ring data. This is where we get into sort of some more interdisciplinary methods beyond the, uh, the written sources. And essentially what tree ring data does is it tells us, relatively speaking, how much rain fell in a given area. And so when trees grow every year, they leave a ring. And the width of that ring tells us relatively how much water that the tree absorbed during that year. The more water, the wider the ring, the less water, the narrower the ring. There's this collaborative project uh, by environmental scholars who called the Old World Drought Atlas. And what they've done is essentially establish these tree ring chronologies from at some points before the year zero all the way to the present that looks at uh, relative rainfall uh, in any given spot in Europe and the Mediterranean using a metric called the Palmer Drought Severity Index, which was designed initially, I think, by the, the U.S. government to monitor drought in the country. What we can see from this is that there is extreme drought happening in Ifriqiya during the 1140s, during these times testified by the Chronicles, and that it's as bad as we would think it would be, if not worse. And so what we see here is that not only were the Zirids factoring in all of these like negative things happening to them, but also there really was this really terrible environmental event that meant that the Zirids couldn't feed their people. And that what probably happened is that they were unable to pay for the grain that the Normans could provide to them. And as a result, they're sort of powerless in debt to the Normans, and there's not much they can do near the end to stop the Normans from, from conquering the, the coastline of Afrikia from not only the Zirids at this point, but also the other sort of local lords that dot the coastline. The Norman conquests of 
the coastline of Ephrikia really come to a head in 1148 when the Norman fleet under George of Antioch uh, conquers Madia and displaces the last Zirid emir, Al-Hassan ibn Ali, who's forced to flee westward. And here we have the foundation of the so-called Norman Kingdom of Africa, uh, which exists for close to a dozen years in some form. And this effectively kind of ends the Zirid dynasty for the time being. Yeah, that's great. I, I asked you specifically about the endocrinology because I, I just think it's such a fascinating way to find out about the past. Well, and now coming back to the Normans, it seems that after defeating his Syrian rival Al-Hassan, the Norman king, Roger II, kind of felt the need to, to brag somewhat about his new possessions. So he added Rex Africae, which means King of Africa in Latin, to his list of titles to highlight the extent of his dominions. Who did he want to impress with his show of his might? And moreover, how did the Norman court go about governing these new possessions? Yeah, the issue of Rex Africae, or in Arabic, Malik Ifriqia, is a really compelling one because the evidence is a little ambiguous and it just hints to how the Norman monarchy kind of wanted to present itself. And so we have scattershot evidence that Roger II and his successor, William I, deployed this title in some circumstances. Now, they never or rarely would use it in their official charters. That's kind of like the main sort of kind of government document that we have for the time. And here they go with the the title that the popes bestow upon them, which grants them control of Sicily and, and these regions in southern Italy. But we see the traces of the fact that the Norman kings wanted to, I think, use the word brag there, which is good, wanted to brag about their conquests of North Africa in some way. So there's one sword that is attested to in a couple sources that mentions that you know they had conquered Africa. There's uh, Another like footnote uh, in an early 20th century book on charters that were destroyed in World War II that mention a charter from the Normans that used the term King of Africa. We have some charters not written by the Norman monarchy, but by notaries in Eastern Italy that uses the term King of Africa. We have uh, just like small pieces of evidence that suggest that they circulated this idea that they were kings of Africa informally in, in their court or as a way of boasting or something like that, but they didn't go so far as to make it like part of their royal titulature, right? And so they wanted to show to some that they had done this, but not so far as to sort of make it part of their, you know, official correspondence. And I guess this kind of is in keeping with how they actually govern these possessions. You know, King of Africa is such a grandiose title, but really they just had control of a handful of urban centers <laughs> over this coast of like modern Tunisia. And they didn't really do much in terms of governance with it. If anything, they tried to just kind of keep things as much with the status quo as they could to discourage insurrections. So they appoint local governors using robes of honor and contracts, which is the customary way of doing things in the Muslim world. It's possible that they directly govern the city of Madia, 
uh, as well as some of the islands between Sicily and North Africa. But the day-to-day operations were not really substantial. They probably uh, just had a small garrison in the cities that they controlled. They had some agents to uh, ensure adherence to taxes. And we know that they kind of inverted this tax called the jizya uh, for their benefit. Now, this is a tax that is commonly levied in Muslim lands on non-Muslims, namely Christians and Jews. It's essentially a head tax to ensure that Muslims have the economic advantage. And the norm has kind of inverted that so that Christians uh, levied a jizya-like tax on Muslims and Jews in North Africa. This government governance was really hands-off, but these small changes, you know, having churches that were a little better funded, having Norman garrisons, having these new taxes made enough of a change that it caused unrest that's going to eventually lead to uh, revolts against Norman rule. Mm-hmm. And a big chunk of the reasons why the Norman kingdom of Ephrikia isn't uh, widely known today is its brief existence, as you mentioned, about a dozen years. Uh, how did both Norman governance and external factors uh, lead to the expulsion of the, of the Normans from the region? And how was Ifriqiya politically transformed in these processes aftermath? I think to understand the fall of Norman Africa, we, there are sort of two main factors here. One of them is the rise of the Almohads, who I alluded to a while ago. And the other is kind of the small societal change that the Normans made that favored Christians at the expense of Muslims. So the Almohads are a, another Berber group that arise in uh, sort of modern day southern Morocco and sweep up and conquer uh, much of Iberia and the Maghreb and Ifriqiya during the uh, uh, early and mid 12th century. The Almohads were a, a concern for the Normans as they were sort of pushing uh, eastward. At one point, they tried to force a Muslim judge in the city of Tripoli, which they controlled, not to switch allegiance to the Almohads, which means that they were concerned that they would switch allegiance to the Almohads. So we have this force that's kind of at the doorstep. But the Almohads aren't going to be the initial sort of impetus for Norman loss of territory. These small changes that the Normans made uh, to their cities in Ifriqiya were enough that the revolts began to crop up in the mid-1150s. Now, this is coinciding with a time when the Almohads are beginning to encroach on Ifriqiya. So maybe the there was communication between these uh, rebels and the Almohads. The idea would be to like switch allegiance or something like that. But what we can tell is that there were revolts against Norman rule in the 1150s that went uncontested for the most part. Uh, this is because we have a new ruler, William I of Sicily, who has to deal with uh, internal problems and an external invasion. So he doesn't have the resources really to grapple with uh, revolts in Ifriqiya. And by the end of these revolts, Norman rule is reduced to two cities in Madia and Gabes uh, along the coast of Ifriqiya. Not soon after, after in uh, the late 1150s, the Almohads arrive in the region and they quickly consolidate their power there. Most cities along the coast capitulate to them without resistance. Uh, but some areas, especially in the in inland areas, uh, resist Almohad rule. The Almohads arrive outside of uh, Madia in 1159, and they siege the city for a couple months, and it falls in early 1160, thus ending uh, Norman rule in Ifriqiya. At this point, actually, the Zirid Emir al-Hassan is with the Almohads. He had been imprisoned by his rivals uh, in modern-day Algeria, 
And then when the Amhuds conquered that territory, they brought him along. And it, it, Al-Hassan was probably a useful legitimizing force for the Amhuds. And this is seen in the fact that they either made him the governor or the co-governor of uh, Madia after their conquest. So it's kind of a ritual like continuation of the line of succession through which the Amahas are kind of continuing the Zirids and ignoring this little irregular blip of the Normans. Now, after the Amahads conquer Ifriqiya, the political landscape totally changes. They essentially remove those who were disloyal to them and who tried to resist them to the Maghreb where they can be close to their uh, court at Marrakesh. And they replace local governors with Amahad commanders or those sort of within their inner circle. And thus we have this realignment of the Afrikian political system so that it's it's hard to see the similarities uh, between the, the pre and post Almohads. But it's not like these invasions were so devastating to the Normans that they wanted nothing to do with the Almohads. By the 1180s, there are treaties in place between the Almohads, the Normans, and other Italian city-states to allow these Christian powers to trade in Almohad ports. So again, commerce reigned supreme, uh, uh, even though we had these conquests happening in the 1150s and 1160s. And this is kind of the end of the Norman Kingdom of Africa. And when Al-Hassan dies, the end of the Zirid line uh, entirely. Mm -hmm. Well, now we're nearing the end of the interview. And I'd like to ask you, Uh, how the interconnected histories of the Syrids and the Normans were remembered during the Middle Ages? Well, the answer for the Latin sources is very easy. They weren't remembered at all. There was very little uh, in narratives about Crusades. We don't really hear about the Normans. If anything, the Normans are foils because they're, they don't really go on as many, or at least the Normans of Sicily, they don't undertake Crusades in the same way that uh, the Normans of Southern Italy did. Now, In Arabic sources, it's a little more interesting. Uh, I mentioned before that the sources to consider Zirid uh, rule were written decades, centuries after the fact. And some of the most important ones were written during the time of the Crusades, during the time of Saladin. Uh, and they kind of subsume Norman Zirid conflict into, into this greater narrative. So instead of seeing the Zirids and the Normans as being uh, sort of isolated in their interactions with one another, uh, authors like Ibn al-Athir view it as one prong of this monolithic conflict between Christians and Muslims across the Mediterranean. So in this conflict, we not only have conflict in the Maghreb and Iberia, so modern day Spain and Morocco, we don't not only have this via the Crusades in the modern Middle East, but we also have this central theater between the Normans and the Zirids, and between the Muslims in Sicily, who the Normans conquered. So Arabic sources kind of subsume this conflict between the Zirids and the Normans under this banner of uh, sort of larger interfaith conflict that in their minds justifies jihad as a response. And that's how it's remembered during the Middle Ages. And one of the ways we can kind of see that this is to the authors more about Islam than it is about the Zirids is in some of the vocabulary choices they make. And the one that I think is most telling is that uh, in the work of Ibn Khaldun, he refers to the Almohad reconquest of Madia. But the Almohads had never conquered Madia up to that point. So this is a reconquest on behalf of Islam, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like they are conquering it for the Almohads. They're conquering it so that 
Islam could have it once again because it legitimately had it and there was just this little interregnum of the Christian Normans holding it. And that's how it's really remembered in the Middle Ages. And then it's uh, sort of not a major historical player after that. This has been a lot of fun, Matt. And so before we close our conversation, uh, could you tell us about your next projects? So I'm working on two projects. One of them is a translation of the 12th century geography of Al-Idrisi. Not the whole thing, because that would destroy me, but a one section of it devoted to Ifriqiya. And that's going to be part of a co-authored work that kind of looks at the portions of Al-Idrisi's geography that talk about territories held by the Normans. Uh, the other project I'm working on is on labor in the medieval Maghreb. So it's trying to use sources in an innovative way to look at sort of people who worked jobs that don't get a lot of press in in medieval uh, chronicles and, and, and sources. So it's looking at potters and uh, dye makers and foragers and that sort of thing. So trying to use fatwas and geographies and things like that to understand how people operating on the peripherals of history on the on that periphery, how they manage to, uh, you know, to, to look at how they live their lives. And then I'm hoping as well to do something with Python, the coding language, because I'm learning that still working on what the project's going to be, but I'm hoping to be able to do that. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Uh, well, this was an interview uh, for the New Books Network for the channel of history. My name is Luca Heverle. I'm a host of the channel. And today we were in conversation with Dr. Matt King, whose new book is Dynasties Intertwined, The Series of Ifriqiya and the Normans of Sicily. Thank you very much for your time, Matt. Thank you for having me.